We continue now with our series, The Worst Place to Work in the Federal Government, focusing on the Bureau of Prisons. We just heard from the president of the union representing corrections officers. Now we'll talk to a working senior officer specialist. He doesn't have official permission to speak publicly. We'll call him Officer X, and we've disguised his voice to protect his anonymity. Officer X, good to have you with us. Good morning. And just to briefly describe your job and what you do, and if you feel okay about telling us where it is, if not, that's okay too. But basically, what does an officer specialist do, and what's your contact you know, with the prison population on a day-to-day basis? Uh, generally, a senior officer specialist is in between the line staff of the officers and the lieutenant's management. We're not management. We're still bargaining staff, and we're kind of the go-between between the regular officers uh, before they need assistance from a lieutenant for whatever reason. Our job has traditionally been to train staff from when they get hired, and that had fallen away and now we're kind of getting reorganized so we can do that better. Work with the inmate population. Uh, usually we're the ones that they'll speak to before, again, things escalate to the point of meeting a supervisor. We generally, generally take positions of leadership within the prison. Before you can apply to be a lieutenant, you have to have been an aides officer and have worked all the major positions in the facility before you could move up. It used to be a position that was competitive that you applied for. A lot of us took years before we could get to that point now it's automatic and anybody can get it for any just private enough time in so the value of it's kind of decreased lately but it could be high stress for example i've worked in the SMU unit at thompson and the officer in charge position running a SMU unit is what probably used to be the lieutenant's job sure what is a SMU unit a special management unit well the SMU unit was The special management was a restrictive housing unit made up of the inmates that had, for whatever reason, through violence, gang organization, extreme amounts of incident reports or disturbances and and other negative behavior, been pushed there as like a last resort before being sent to the supermax. The idea was to be able to, can we reintegrate some of these horrible, you know, have they committed all these horrible offenses? Can we put them back in GP or not? And the screaming unit has continued to fail at every facility it's ever been at, and uh, they just closed it. And it felt like they kind of blamed all the officers for a program that they knew they were closing. And just to clarify, then, your line-level job of corrections officer, you are a level above that, which is then the last step as a line person or a bargaining unit person before becoming management. That's correct. And because of the understaffing, do you find that you, as an officer supervisor, so to speak, officer specialist, do you get called back down to the corrections officer level sometimes on the floor because of staffing shortages? Well, I mean, we're officers. We, we all bid the same posts as, the, as a new officer. We just generally will have higher seniority so we can have our pick. For example, if I decided to go work a tower as opposed to the, the floor with the inmates, a lieutenant could say, hey, you've got enough experience. I'm short here. I need you to go work a different area. And it's kind of hard to say no because you should be working leading the front kind of thing. And so it's our job to work any post as requested. But yeah, it happens. We're not overstaffed anymore. We're, we, are, we are not understaffed anymore where we are, but that's because they closed the, the SMOOC program. So it's now they're sending the officers to go work facilities across the country as a corrective action. Right, because they've scattered the prisoners that were troublesome out of that unit, and now they're placed throughout the system? Yes, exactly. 
And I guess let's get to the heart of the matter here. Why do you think that the Bureau of Prisons ranked lowest in the best places to work in the federal government rankings, making it the worst place to work? Well, traditionally, you know, just during any bad incident, we always say, what's the first thing that that caused it to become difficult? What's the first thing to fail was communication. And that has been our struggle. Our management and our staff don't have any good communication with each other. For example, based on what's happening at our facility, they said that we all had to take a class on communication, right? It was mandatory, whereas in the rest of the Bureau, it's a voluntary go-getter course to take communication. Everybody at the facility has to take it, except the management don't. The management have yet to, to be part of that thing that is our weak link, right? We're not communicating with each other. We're not, we don't have an open dialogue, and they don't show up. And so it definitely feels like there there's this bigger divide. A lot of times the Bureau custody and non-custody have a divide. In our facility, it's management and the line staff that are completely divided. It really feels like when there's an incident that happens, the executive staff are concerned about how the inmates' feelings are, and they don't discuss problems with the staff. So that, that kind of is a slap in the face to a lot of us. Right, so you feel like you have to deal with the most difficult task, which is maintaining the order and also, in theory at least, helping for the rehabilitation of the prisoners themselves, but you don't have management that you feel communicates with what's going on or shares your concerns? Absolutely, especially when it comes to holding them accountable. For years, we had issues where the inmates were committing sexual crimes against our staff members, and there was almost zero accountability being enacted. Uh, Sometimes, like if an inmate received a consequence, it would be, for example, an inmate with nobody coming to visit him would be having their visits taken away uh, as a consequence for for committing a sexual act against a staff member. So like, how is that a sanction? Or, for example, everybody in the SMU program was already basically on a limited amount of property, and they would be given a property sanction where they're not allowed to have anything. And again, that's That's no deterrent. We're speaking with Officer X. He's a senior officer specialist with the Bureau of Prisons. So do you consider it a good place to work, a bad place to work? I mean, what's your own feeling about what you do for a profession and and the agency you work for? I started working in my first prison at age 20, and I had no interest in law enforcement or corrections at the time. I just, at the time, needed a job. And then after working that for a small amount of time, a few years, I got hired by the Bureau and realized that it was a great opportunity with somebody if I didn't have a college education or I didn't have military. It was a great place for me to, to find the very least a livable wage and opportunities for promotion advancement to move around the country if I wanted to. All sorts of benefits, health benefits and vacation and things like that. So I was very optimistic. Getting To this point, it seems like a lot of the benefits are slowly starting to dwindle away. And when it comes to when I train new officers, I try to explain why it's important to have a work ethic. And now it's harder and harder to find the reasons to back that up, other than it's the right thing to do. And sometimes that's not enough. I mean, do you feel a sense of mission still with respect to the goals of the Bureau of Prison, which is rehabilitation officially? I mean, there's a great feeling when you see, uh, I've run into an inmate in public that's been released from prison that's staying out of trouble. And, you know, uh, it's always a, a interesting situation where you try to like make sure like your family's not there. But to be able to go, hey, keep up the good work. 
you know, the best compliment I can say is I hope I never see you again. But it's a good feeling when you see someone, you know, start fresh and continue. Or if I've met an ex-convict that's continuing to do the right thing. I'm very supportive of that. I, I absolutely believe in people getting a fresh start. The problem is not everyone wants the fresh start. I firmly believe that the inmate that wants to rehabilitate themselves, like nothing's going to hold them back. They are going to take advantage of their programs. They're driven because that's what it takes to rehabilitate is the personal drive, right? The inmates of the SMU, for example, are bound and determined to be away from the general public and they're going to continue to do their behavior in order to stay in the restrictive housing unit. That's a lot of times it's for their own safety that they've made that choice. So like you could give those people as many opportunities and options. The ones who want to take advantage of it are going to do it. You can't make them. We could provide the opportunities and I, I firmly believe that's important. But you said earlier that the sense of the good benefits and good pay and values of the job have eroded away. I mean, nothing has changed in the general terms of federal employment. So what has ebbed away for you and what should the Bureau, do you think, do to restore that sense of this is where I want to be? Well, some of it's political. Some of it's, you know, the fact that we're continuing to have government shutdowns where you used to have a stable job and you were concerned about that, or you worry about the retirement benefits being changed by politics. But also, like, we're driven to do our mission to keep the public safe from people who have chosen to be apart from society. And we're supposed to be a role model. And we're given these values that we're supposed to emulate in front of the inmate population, but that isn't emulated above us. You know, this goes back, when I started the Bureau, there was a director that got pulled over on a DUI, and he tried to use his credentials to get out of getting a ticket for it. And that happened a week after he wrote us all a message about ethics. And it's always symbols like that where you are told what's expected of you, but that it isn't represented by your leadership. Sure. And what about wardens? How have they been? I can't think of anyone in our current facility that that supports our warden very much a uh, person that has made it clear that the staff is not their priority. Morale is a hard thing to maintain in the best of circumstances. We're now being told that officers are not allowed to raise their voices at inmates because we don't want to intimidate them. Like, it's just little things pop up here and there where it's very much let us know that the executives do not have our backs. So what are you hoping for from the new director, Ms. Peters, and she's like the 10th or something in five years? I mean, there's been a rotation of top leadership. What would you expect from her to try to start writing the ship? You know, I I understand that it takes a long time to to change anything. You know, we, we always talk about it you're changing direction on the the cruise ship, not a speedboat. And if your directors are only in office for a year or two, how can they make any real distinct change over time? Just the other day, the director made an announcement that they're changing our core values. Our core values had traditionally been correctional excellence, respect, and integrity are their three. The previous director added courage to our core values. She decided to make a speech and an announcement to change our core values to get rid of courage, replace it with compassion, and add accountability. Uh, Those are all great ideas. That's fine. But why is that the priority right now, to make a speech about changing our core values? There's probably a lot more better policies, initiatives to get us better staffing, get us our facilities repaired. You know, there's so many other things that could be done rather than making a speech about some words that Yes, should mean something to the average officer, but why is that a priority? It feels like lip service as opposed to 
any actual decision making. And that's what we've heard from the state of Oregon was that she had a lot of great ideas, but what actually changed the things that we're being told that are going to be changed are things like restrictive housing units and holding inmates accountable. That really makes it feel like when you're an officer and you get assaulted by an inmate and nothing bad happens, or you have an inmate with a history of that kind of behavior and you don't take the precautionary measures or put them in the appropriate security confinement, these are people that aren't concerned about what's going to happen to you later. And that, that's, that's hard. What I want to see is a balance, not swinging hard one way or the other like our job is to carry out the directives handed down to us it's not really whether i agree with a directive or not necessarily but if it's consistently stuff that impacts the agency bad it's hard to want to carry that out will be part of making continuing the bad sure. decision and a final question i mean have you enjoyed your career and do you feel that people need to know more about what it's like to be a corrections officer than what might be the cliches of someone walking around, you know, banging on bars or something? You know, that's something we talk about all the time is what would you change if you could change people's perspective of what we do, that we are not the knuckle-dragging Neanderthals just waiting to beat an inmate. Like, we know that that's occasionally part of the job that you have to get physical. Our job is to save that to the last resort, if at all possible. You know, in a situation where you're dealing with violent offenders, it's obviously more more likely. But we're trying to show that we are an organization made up of a lot of people, uh, either they're veterans or former law enforcement from other agencies, people that care about what they do. Like, I care about making sure my other coworkers go home safe. I care the fact that at the end of the shift, all my inmates are still alive, you know, and in the same shape that they were when I got there. Like, we care about that. We want to maintain peace and order. We would like to see not just the benefits that we wanted for ourselves, but, like, I want to see people coming in to replace me that care as much as I do. And how do I attract those people if, if I'm running out of the reasons, you know? And so I, I have enjoyed my career. I'm proud to be a federal law enforcement officer for and serve my country. I did not serve in the military, but I, I believe I've served for half my life in corrections and I'm proud of it. I don't necessarily want my kid to follow my footsteps. I want my kid to go better than, than what I've done. And that it has definitely been something that's provided me opportunities that I wouldn't have had without it. Officer X is a senior officer specialist with the Bureau of Prisons. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, sir. And we'll post this interview together with the others in our series, The Worst Place to Work in the Federal Government, at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. 
Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners, And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw... It was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do 
other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort I, of the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> 
and um, mm-hmm. being born in rural southwest uh, mm-hmm. Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.